And I want to say this to the television audience. I made my mistakes, but in all of my years of public life, I have never profited, never profited from public service. I've earned every cent. And in all of my years of public life, I have never obstructed justice. And I think, too, that I can say that in my years of public life, that I welcome this kind of examination because people have got to know whether or not their president is a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. I've earned everything I've got. Welcome to the Abridged Presidential Histories with Kenny Ryan, Episode 37, Richard Nixon, a.k.a. Tricky Dick. Everyone thinks they know Richard Nixon. He's the Watergate guy, the one who resigned, the villain of presidential history. But I also look at him as the most unpopular populist we have ever elected. Nixon was a tortured soul, more moderate politically than you might think. He sought to become loved by going where he thought the American people were going. He would dog whistle on race in the South one day and sign progressive legislation the next. He aligned with the Red Scare when it was ascendant, and he opened relations with communist China as president. He was full of contradictions, which is why no matter how badly he wanted to be as loved as John F. Kennedy, he was never loved like John F. Kennedy. But above all things, Nixon wanted to win. And in order to win, he wasn't going to let any man, woman, law, or truth stand in his way. Nixon would need just six years to go from freshman congressman to vice president of the United States. Once there, he would be on the Republican presidential ticket as president or vice for five of the next six elections, winning four of those races. From checkers to China, Alger Hiss to Watergate, we're going to explore the tactics that earned Nixon the nickname Tricky Dick and try to make sense of the political enigma that was Richard Nixon. Richard Milhouse Nixon was born January 9, 1913 on the outskirts of Los Angeles, and it was a pretty tough childhood. Two of Nixon's brothers died of tuberculosis, possibly contracted from the family's cow, and his father's temper was so short that he was known to hit Nixon when it snapped. This all made for a rather awkward and inward-looking boy who wanted to be loved, but struggled to connect with folks. Nixon attended college in Whittier, California, also outside LA, then earned a scholarship to Duke Law School, but failed to secure a job after graduating, so home he went, and resentful of East Coast elites he became. And it was back in Whittier that he met his future wife, Thelma Catherine Ryan, also known as Pat, in a local theater group. Pat was initially so uninterested in Nixon that she would have him drive her to dates with other men. But he was so persistent in his courtship that she eventually said yes to marriage. The Nixon marriage was not the happiest. There wasn't any infidelity, but there were enough fights that Pat sometimes locked Nixon out of the house. When Nixon became president, Pat became a ghost. Nixon wanted her seen, not heard, telling an aide, We don't want her to become like Eleanor Roosevelt. She grew so terrified of being yelled at for saying the wrong thing that she rarely opened her mouth at all. But the presidency was still far away. First, Nixon had to go serve in World War II. That's right! Six months after Pearl Harbor, Nixon signed up because he saw military service as a path to upward mobility, and boy was he right. Nixon's job was backline logistics, which meant, aside from the one time his position was shelled by the Japanese Navy, he was safely far from the front line. When the war ended, his law degree was put to use, closing out government contracts. And it was at this time that a letter arrived in the mail. Some friends back in Whittier had a crazy idea. How would Nixon like to run for Congress? Nixon said, sure, he'd seen the waste of war and wanted to build a better world, aspiring to emulate Theodore Roosevelt and Woodrow Wilson. But he also wanted to win. Oh boy, did he want to win. Nixon's first congressional campaign cast the mold that his career would be built from. Those friends who reached out to him, well, 
they were connected to Whittier's banking and oil industry, and they did not like their current congressman, a man named Voorhees, who was pro-union, anti-big business, and the oil lobby's worst nightmare. They hadn't recruited Nixon because they liked him. They had recruited him because they thought a young veteran was what they needed to beat Voorhees. Nixon's backers fixed the Republican primary to make sure Nixon emerged on top. Then, in the general election, they pumped thousands of dollars of secret donations into his campaign, enabling Nixon to buy crucial radio, billboard, and newspaper ads throughout the district. The newspaper ads were especially important because the district's small newspapers became loyal to whoever gave them the most money, and they framed every story to make Nixon look the hero and Voorhees the villain. And Nixon piled on. He painted Voorhees, whose signature legislation was an anti-communist bill. He painted him as a communist. Nixon bent the truth so far that Nixon's friends and wife became uncomfortable with it. But Nixon's stance was, this is what it takes to win. The day before the election, residents of Nixon's district, including my father-in-law's family, received anonymous calls that are now part of the family lore. A ringing phone, a stranger's voice. Hi, neighbor. Voorhees is a communist. Thought you'd like to know. Click. The next day, California went to vote. And wouldn't you know it, Richard Nixon defeated Voorhees with 56% of the vote. Once in Washington, Congressman Nixon did channel Wilson and TR when he helped pass the Marshall Plan, but that's not what he became known for. No, what he became most famous for was his work on the House Un-American Activities Committee and his pursuit of Alger Hiss. The House Un-American Activities Committee, also known as HUAC, was basically the Racist Red Scare Committee. Formed in 1938 to root out fifth columnists, it quickly became a committee of bigots. Nixon joined the committee because, well, he'd just gotten elected by painting his opponent as a communist, and he saw further fanning of the Red Scare as his easiest path to the top. The committee had an awful track record of uncovering any actual communist. Generally, it was just accusing Jews and blacks of being Reds to ruin their lives, but it did make one big catch, and Nixon played a key role. Okay, who remembers Yalta? Nobody? Nobody? It's okay. Let's, let's revisit. Yalta was the big conference toward the end of World War II between FDR, Churchill, and Stalin. It was later pointed to as a moment that the United States abandoned Eastern Europe to Soviet domination. Well, a few years after Yalta, a retired columnist named Whitaker Chambers was called before HUAC to testify, and he dropped one of the biggest red meat bombshells of the Red Scare era. Chambers claimed that one of the key State Department officials at Yalta, Alger Hiss, was a Soviet spy. And the insinuation here is that Alger Hiss is the Soviet spy that turned Eastern Europe over to the communists. This was a huge accusation. Hiss was very popular with establishment elites, who couldn't believe that their friend might be a Soviet. And when Hiss was called to testify before HUAC, he nearly convinced them as well. He gave a compelling performance, saying he'd never met Chambers, had never been a communist, and they had the wrong guy. Every member of the embarrassed HUAC panel was ready to dismiss the case and forget it. Except Nixon. Nixon thought they should probe deeper, in part because he did not trust Hiss, and in part because one of California's Senate seats was coming open, and he thought nailing Hiss would make him a lock for the Senate. Nixon saw the case, as it were, because this is not a real trial, just a congressional inquiry. He saw that it hinged on Hiss's flat denial that he had never known Chambers. If Nixon could prove Hiss was lying about that, it would throw the rest of Hiss's denials into question. But how to prove it? Nixon spent two hours questioning Chambers about every detail of his long-ago friendship with Hiss. Uh, Chambers described Hiss's car, Hiss's wife, Hiss's cocker spaniel, and that Hiss loved birdwatching and had once spotted a rare prothonotary warbler. The details checked out, so Nixon confronted Hiss. How does this man you say you never met know so much about you? Hiss was flustered. His denials got confused. 
Then there was one last question from Nixon. Have you ever by chance seen a proto-notary warbler? Hiss said yes. Ah. On August 25th, 1948, in the first televised congressional hearing ever, Nixon got Hiss and Chambers in a room together for what he hoped would be a decisive confrontation. Chambers said he knew Hiss and shared details a friend would know. Hiss denied everything, but it was still he said he said. There was no proof. But then Hiss made a mistake. He sued Chambers for defamation. And that's when Chambers told his lawyer the secret he had been holding back. Chambers had proof that Hiss was a spy. But legally, he could not tell Nixon directly. So Chambers' lawyers dropped very strong hints you might want to search Chambers' home. A search was organized, and Chambers led the investigators to a pumpkin. A carved-out pumpkin. Hiding inside the pumpkin was microfilm that Hiss had stolen for the Soviets, proof that Hiss was a spy. From there, it broke wide open. Hiss was a Soviet spy, one of the biggest busts of the entire Cold War, and Nixon became a hero overnight. But there is a caveat. While we don't know what all Hiss may have given the Soviets, the stuff we do know he gave them was intel on Imperial Japan and Nazi Germany during the 1930s, when those two imperial powers were growing in strength in Russia was one of the few nations signaling it would stand up to them. In other words, Hiss might not have been spying on the United States. He might have been freelancing, recognizing Nazi Germany and Imperial Japan as a threat, and sharing intelligence that he thought would help stop them. Many Americans would continue to think Hiss had been taken down by trumped-up charges for decades. But Nixon didn't care. He'd achieved his goal. His star had been raised, and he was elected senator from California later that year, <laughs> defeating Lyndon Johnson's mistress, fun story, campaigning on the notion that she was another communist stooge. Two years after sneaking into the Senate, Nixon snuck on to the presidential ticket. Ike's presidential ticket. It's time for the presidential race of 1952. You may remember from Eisenhower's episode that Nixon worked his way onto Ike's ticket by helping Ike win the party's nomination through some trickery at the convention. And then Ike's advisors told Ike that, well, because Ike was old, eastern, and moderate, he should find someone young, western, and conservative to balance the ticket. And Nixon fit the bill. But what I didn't talk about during Ike's episode was the checker speech. This is gold. So, two months into the fall presidential campaign, the New York Times, tipped off by political rivals with a grudge, reported that Nixon's lifestyle had been funded, in part, by a blind trust that millionaires and big businesses put money into. Nixon had no idea who was donating the money, but he was free to spend it for personal needs. It did not look good. It looked like Nixon was on the take and selling political influence for cash, and it quickly became the campaign issue of 1952. And then Nixon received word from Eisenhower HQ. They had bought 30 minutes of TV and radio airtime for Nixon to address the report. The audience was expected to be huge. What Eisenhower wanted was to get Nixon off the ticket, but Ike was in a quandary. If Ike fired Nixon, that would look like admitting a mistake. And if he pardoned Nixon, it would look like condoning bad behavior. He needed Nixon to voluntarily call him and resign. But the phone did not ring, so Ike called Nixon. And still, Nixon did not offer to resign. At one point, filling the phone line with 60 seconds of awkward silence. Finally, Ike gave Nixon an order. You must explain every penny of your finances during the TV address and prove you are not on the take. Nixon responded by asking if Ike would endorse him to stay on as VP. Ike said he needed a few days to decide. To this, Nixon replied, General, the great trouble here is indecision. There comes a time in politics when you have to pee or get off the pot. One hour before Nixon went on the air, 
Ike took his advice. An aide called Nixon and ordered Nixon to resign on live TV. But Nixon, I mean, he had his performance all ready to go. He thought he could beat this. So he told the aide, I haven't the slightest idea what I'm going to do. And if they want to find out, they better listen in to the broadcast. 60 minutes later, with the nation and Dwight Eisenhower watching, Nixon came on the air. Nixon opened with the numbers. He explained the slush fund and opened the books on his family's finances, incomes, and debts. He made it clear that, like most Americans, he, Pat, and their daughters were just managing to get by. And then Nixon dropped the line he prayed would save him. We did get something, a gift, after the election. A man down in Texas heard Pat in the radio mention the fact that our two youngsters would like to have a dog. And believe it or not, the day before we left on this campaign trip, we got a message from the Union Station in Baltimore saying they had a package for us. We went down to get it. You know what it was? It was a little cocker spaniel dog in a crate that he'd sent all the way from Texas. Black and white, spotted. And our little girl, Tricia, the six-year-old, named it Checker. And you know, the kids, like all kids, love the dog. And I just want to say this right now, that regardless of what they say about it, we're going to keep him. It was brilliant and effective. But Nixon wasn't done. He went on to say that everyone running for president should reveal their financial histories. That is right. This moment right here is the origin of presidential candidates sharing their tax forms with the public. Nixon closed by encouraging voters to call the Republican National Committee, not Eisenhower's campaign, to weigh in on if Nixon should quit or stay. And then Nixon pledged to abide by the RNC's decision, taking the matter out of Eisenhower's hands. As Ike watched the speech from a chair in his study with a pad and pencil in hand, the veins bulged from his head and neck as he turned beet red and stabbed his pencil so hard into the pad that the tip snapped off. Ike was furious, but Nixon had won. Calls to the RNC headquarters ran 200 to 1 in favor of retaining Richard Nixon, and Eisenhower kept him on the ticket. Less than two months later, Eisenhower won the presidency, and Nixon, the vice presidency. Tricky Dick had survived. For the next eight years, Nixon was vice president. When Eisenhower reached the end of his two-term limit, Nixon ran for the top job himself, facing the young, charismatic, and stupidly rich John F. Kennedy. Nixon was narrowly defeated, in part because he'd never developed a close enough relationship with Eisenhower to feel comfortable inviting the president to campaign on his behalf. At one point, Eisenhower was asked by the press to name any presidential decisions Nixon had helped with, and he replied, If you give me a week, I might think of one. Which, if that was payback for the Checkers' betrayal, well played. But Nixon didn't blame his loss on Eisenhower. He had run what he felt was a clean campaign in 1960, and he was convinced JFK had out-dirty tricked him. He would not let that happen again. In 1962, Nixon ran for governor of California and lost again. This time, a clean campaign wasn't to blame. Political moderation may have been the cause of defeat. A far-right political organization known as the John Birch Society, which was kind of sort of like 1960s QAnon, this was a bunch of racist nutjobs who believe in conspiracy theories. They initially supported Nixon during the campaign, but Nixon wanted nothing to do with them, calling the John Birch Society a neo-fascist organization which poses a real threat to the Republican Party. And he publicly distanced himself from them. Without their support, he lost the race. He wouldn't make that mistake again, either. But he also thought his career in politics might finally be done, telling the country in his televised concession speech that you won't have Nixon to kick around anymore. But Nixon wasn't done quite yet. As the election of 1968 approached, Nixon was starting to look like he might once again be the guy. He did not run in 1964, but he did campaign for Republican candidate Barry Goldwater in his losing effort against LBJ. 
which meant in 1968, Nixon wasn't blamed for the 1964 defeat, but appreciated for his help in trying to avert it. And when no other strong rivals emerged, his long time in the national spotlight was enough to capture the 1968 GOP presidential nomination. The easy win was a stark contrast to the Democratic Party, which, rended by the Vietnam War, saw its national convention descend into chaos as protesters and police battled in the streets of Chicago and punches were thrown on the convention floor. LBJ's vice president, Hubert Humphrey, was eventually nominated, but the party was such a mess that Republican victory seemed guaranteed. And yet, Nixon was so paranoid that victory might slip away that old Tricky Dick decided extra precaution must be taken. Extra precaution like mm, sabotaging peace talks in Vietnam to prolong the war. The story goes like this. For years, LBJ had been seeking a negotiated end to the war in Vietnam so he could bring U.S. troops home. In 1968, those talks began to gain steam. As Election Day neared, it appeared that North and South might agree to peace and American boys would be able to come home. When Nixon caught word of this, he freaked out. The polls between him and Hubert Humphrey had tightened to a dead heat. So he had an envoy reach out to South Vietnam's president with a simple message. If you refuse to participate in this peace process, I will get you a better deal than LBJ. The gambit worked. South Vietnam stonewalled the peace talks. LBJ heard what was happening and had Nixon's campaign bugged, leading to further confirmation. But here LBJ found himself in a bind. To reveal what Nixon had done would require announcing he had bugged the presidential campaign of a rival party. The public might be more upset at LBJ than Nixon, so Johnson stayed silent. Without peace, and without news of Nixon's sabotage, there was no October surprise. Nixon, campaigning on law and order and a secret plan to end the war in Vietnam, won the 1968 presidential election, defeating Hubert Humphrey and the racist George Wallace, who is running on a segregation today, segregation tomorrow, segregation forever platform. Nixon won 301 electoral votes to Humphrey's 191 and Wallace's 46. In the popular vote, it was 31.8 million for Nixon, 31.3 million for Hubert Humphrey, and 9.9 million for the racist segregationist George Wallace. Yes, 9.9 .9 million votes and five former Confederate states voted for a segregationist party in 1968. Hmm. As for Vietnam, hundreds of thousands more people would die in Vietnam before the United States finally withdrew in 1973. All so Nixon could win the presidency of the United States. Let's see what he'll do with it. And so, on January 20th, 1969, 56-year-old Richard Nixon, the former red-baiting congressman, senator, and vice president from California, of Alger Hiss and Checkers fame, had finally achieved the top prize. But what did the world and the country look like when Tricky Dick became president? Let's look around. Domestically, the United States was in a rough spot. The 60s had seen great advances in civil rights under LBJ's leadership, but addressing racism on the law books is one thing, and addressing racism in men's hearts is another. Outside the South, redlining, credit denial, and police brutality continued to oppress minority communities, and desperate frustration had boiled over in a series of riots during LBJ's final years. It was against this backdrop that Nixon had campaigned as the law and order candidate. But racial unrest wasn't the only challenge facing Nixon. The anti-war movement was vocal and ascendant. It wanted out of Vietnam now. And inflation, which had generally hovered below 2% since World War II, inflation was on the rise. But that wasn't the worst of it. The really bad news for Nixon was that the Democrats had won both houses of Congress. And when you're president, it's hard to get anything done when the other party controls 
Congress. So Nixon came up with a pragmatic solution. If the Democrats control Congress, why fight them on the domestic agenda? I'll give them what they want domestically if they give me what I want internationally, and maybe I'll even pick up some votes out of this, which Nixon did. Nixon increased the food stamp budget. He hiked Social Security payments 20%. He doubled funding for the arts. He lowered the voting age from 21 to 18, created the Environmental Protection Agency, signed the Clean Air Act of 1970, and signed Title IX, banning sex discrimination in educational programs or activities. If you, your daughter, your sister, your mother, any woman you ever knew had played a sport in K through 12 or collegiately, Title IX is what made that possible. It was huge. I could be totally wrong here, but I'm not sure any president since Nixon has actually signed as much progressive legislation as Richard Nixon did, which feels like a crazy thing to say. But Nixon didn't give Democrats everything they wanted. He vetoed a bill that would have provided universal childcare. Imagine how different life would be today if that had passed. And he increasingly sparred with them the longer he was in office. Uh, stay tuned. I will have a historian interview on Nixon's domestic agenda and his development of the Southern strategy to win re-election in the episodes ahead. Okay, so that's domestic Nixon. What about the international situation Nixon inherited? Tensions were simmering in the Middle East, where Israel had just captured Gaza, the West Bank, the Sinai Peninsula, and the Golan Heights during the Six-Day War of 1967. The war had started when Egypt ordered a UN peacekeeping force out of the way so it could invade Israel. The UN abandoned the Sinai Peninsula in 24 hours, and then Israel shocked Egypt by striking first. The Arab countries would attack Israel again before Nixon's time in office was over. But what Americans were really focused on was the Cold War with the Soviets and the hot war in Vietnam. Nixon was the fifth president to inherit the Cold War and the fifth president to inherit some level of American involvement in Vietnam. By the time the war got to Nixon, it was a disaster. The Tet Offensive launched by North Vietnam a year earlier had severely depleted North Vietnam's forces, but it also rocked the American psyche. Few still believed their government when it told them, the end is in sight. Nixon had campaigned for president on a secret plan to end the war, peace with honor, which he fully expected to achieve in a matter of months. Instead, it took four years. The thing is, Nixon didn't have one secret plan, he had two. And now that he'd won office, he had to pick which one to pursue. Uh, plan A immediately withdraw all American troops in exchange for a return of American prisoners held in the North and an evacuation of key allies, then allow the country to reunify under Northern control and blame it all on LBJ. Or Plan B, escalation. Nixon chose Plan B and, less than a month into office, started bombing Cambodia. Why was Nixon bombing Cambodia? Let me tell you, uh, Cambodia is the country just across the western border from South Vietnam. And though Cambodia was officially neutral, North Vietnam used its roads and jungles to transport soldiers and supplies to South Vietnam. We called it the Ho Chi Minh Trail, and it's basically how the North kept the Viet Cong reinforced and supplied in the South, and Nixon wanted it bombed. In secret. At least, it was initially a secret until the New York Times broke the story three months later, which outraged the nation and outraged Nixon, who placed wiretaps on four journalists and 13 suspected leakers in retaliation. Yeah, he's been in office four months and we're already starting with the illegal wiretapping thing. Hold on to your butts. But Nixon's bigger problem was that Vietnam wasn't coming to the peace table. Nixon thought if he just bombed them more and had his aides spread rumors that he was about to nuke them, they would end the war. Uh, you may remember this is basically what Eisenhower did to end the Korean War when Nixon was his vice president, but it did not work for Nixon. North Vietnam did not fall for the bluff, because at the same time Nixon was stepping up his bombing, he was actually beginning the withdrawal of American troops. Uh, this plan was called Vietnamization, and the idea was to slowly remove U.S. troops and make South Vietnam fight the war. North Vietnam was not impressed. 
If American troops couldn't win the war, why the heck should anyone believe South Vietnam troops could do any better? North Vietnam was convinced that as soon as the American soldiers were gone, the South would fall. So they were willing to endure increased bombing so long as American soldiers kept leaving the South. Victory would eventually be theirs. And this was bad news for Nixon politically because, well, he had promised a secret plan to end the war and it was not ending. So as the anti-war movement marched, Nixon rallied his supporters with another televised master stroke. So tonight, to you, the great silent majority of my fellow Americans, I ask for your support. I pledged in my campaign for the presidency to end the war in a way that we could win the peace. I have initiated a plan of action which will enable me to keep that pledge. The more support I can have from the American people, the sooner that pledge can be redeemed. For the more divided we are at home, the less likely the enemy is to negotiate at Paris. Let us be united for peace. Let us also be united against defeat. Because let us understand, North Vietnam cannot defeat or humiliate the United States. Only Americans can do that. Support was rallied, spirits were raised, and then, six months later, Nixon blew it all by publicly announcing a ground invasion of Cambodia again trying to shut down the Ho Chi Minh Trail. The American public freaked out. Protests erupted, and National Guardsmen were called in to stomp them out. At Kent State University in Ohio, Guardsmen fired into a crowd, and four student protesters were killed. Half the nation mourned, and 58% supported the National Guardsmen. At Jackson State University, Police opened fire on a dormitory and killed two African-American students inside. Radical anti-war protesters turned to domestic terrorism, and bombs were going off on American soil. The nation seemed to be coming unglued. And then the Pentagon Papers hit the press. The Pentagon Papers are a 47-volume history of American involvement in Vietnam that had been commissioned by former Secretary of Defense Bob McNamara during the final years of the LBJ administration. They showed in great detail how American presidents from Truman to LBJ had lied about what was happening in Vietnam. It was a top-secret document. Or at least it was supposed to be. One of the analysts who worked on it, Daniel Ellsberg, said, Holy hell! If the American people read this, They'd realize Vietnam is an unjust, unwinnable war, and we'd withdraw so people could stop being killed. So Ellsberg tried taking it to congressional leaders. Here, a secret report. Read this. Launch investigations. Congressional oversight. Do your job. But nobody in Congress wanted to touch it. So Ellsberg contacted the New York Times, and the New York Times said, hell yeah, we'll print that. On June 13, 1971, the Pentagon Papers became a front-page story of conspiracy and deceit at the highest levels of U.S. government. And the Republican Party thought this was great. Remember, the Pentagon Papers were written in 1968. At that point, the Vietnam War had belonged to Truman, Eisenhower, JFK, and LBJ, three Dems and one Republican, and most of the escalation had happened under JFK and LBJ, making the Democrats look terrible. But Nixon misread the situation. He was so worked up in this idea that the news media was the enemy that he reflexively ordered the Justice Department to put a restraining order on the New York Times and ban further publication of the Pentagon Papers. But then the Washington Post picked up where the Times left off. And then the Boston Globe and 16 other papers started writing about the secret report. The courts delivered the coup de grace when they judged in a 6-3 vote that Nixon could not suppress the publication of the papers. A humiliating defeat for Nixon. And worse, one that turned the spotlight away from JFK and LBJ's mistakes and on to Nixon's suppression of free speech. Nixon became paranoid about future leaks. What if his sabotage of LBJ's Vietnam peace talks came out? That could end him. The leaks had to be stopped. But how do you stop a leak? Well, 
you call the plumbers. I'm not talking Mario and Luigi here, but man, that is not far off. One of Nixon's aides hired a bunch of former FBI, CIA, and police officers to form a secret unit tasked with stopping leaks and discrediting leakers. But the guys they hired weren't exactly the cream of the crop. They were bumbling idiots who made all kinds of mistakes. Because these guys were focused on leaks, they called themselves the plumbers. And the plumbers got into all sorts of crazy shit. They broke into the office of Ellsberg's psychiatrist to try to find something to blackmail him into silence with. And Nixon personally ordered them to break into a DC think tank that he feared held evidence of his sabotage of those Vietnam peace talks. I want it implemented on a debris basis. Scott Rand, get it and get those files. Those safe get it. Aside from ordering the break-in that never happened, Nixon wasn't directly involved with the plumbers to our knowledge, perhaps because he was distracted with a new secret plan to end the Vietnam War. China. That's right. Ever since Mao turned China red in 1949, the United States had pretended mainland China was not actually China. The United States had insisted Taiwan, the small island Mao's defeated enemies had fled to, that was China. This farce extended to the point of Taiwan holding China's permanent seat on the UN Security Council. It was kind of crazy. But it was also an opportunity. While most Americans looked at communist China and communist Russia and assumed they were the closest of allies, Nixon knew there was actually a lot of tension between the two communist giants. China did not feel Russia respected it, because it didn't. And Russia thought China wasn't interpreting communism right. That might not sound like much, but the tension was so bad they actually fought a brief undeclared border war in 1969 that killed a few hundred people. Nixon saw this tension and wanted to exploit it. The idea was this. Maybe China would help the United States get peace in Vietnam if the United States showed the Soviets it was in China's corner. But pulling this off would be far easier said than done. There was no American embassy in Beijing, no telephone line to pick up and call. The countries did not talk to each other. So Nixon had his Secretary of State, Henry Kissinger, fly to Pakistan, pretend he was sick for a week, and then secretly fly to China to meet its leaders, grease the wheels, and set the stage for a Nixon visit later that year. China was very open to the idea of rapprochement with the United States, but it wouldn't be free the Chinese drove a hard bargain, and the greatest price of Nixon's visit would be the other China, Taiwan. There could be only one China on the UN Security Council, and mainland China said, if you want to be our friend, you need to get us that seat. And Nixon said, okay. On February 12, 1972, Nixon began an eight-day visit to China, the week that changed the world to signal that the United States and China were now friends. It threw the Soviets onto their back foot and had everybody rethinking what they thought they knew about the Cold War. In hindsight, if you are analyzing this deal for winners and losers, holy smokes, China made a killing. First, they got the permanent seat on the UN Security Council, allowing them to veto anything the council proposes. That is huge. Second, Included in this deal was Chinese access to American intelligence on the Soviet Union. Third, by moving the United States from enemy to frenemy, China was able to count on American help restraining its rivals like Japan, India, and the Soviets at key moments moving forward. Fourth, once the United States became friendly with China, everyone else wanted to become China's friend too. The Western world opened borders and increased trade, leading to a boom in China's economy. China's GDP was $99 billion in 1971. Today, it is $18 trillion. It has gone from the eighth biggest economy in the world behind Italy to the second largest behind only the United States. This is enormous. This deal was transformative in a way that cannot be understated and put China on the path to superpower status. In exchange for all of this, the United States did not get very much. China did not help the United States get out of Vietnam, so no help there. 
As borders opened, American companies began shifting manufacturing to China in the decades that followed, giving China access to American manufacturing secrets and causing American manufacturing to fall by a third since its peak in the 70s. I have been to Chinese factories. They can be very nice, and they can also be dim, toxic hellholes with workers living six to a dorm room right next door. You cannot compete with Chinese manufacturing on price. There are a lot of historians who say Nixon going to China spooked the Soviets so bad that they finally agreed to a nuclear arms limitation treaty with the United States. Uh, talks had already been underway, but this seems to, yeah, sure, maybe this might have spurred them along. The treaty still allowed both sides of nukes to destroy the world many times over, but hey, we will stop building more. So that's a nice start and a win for the world. But there really wasn't much in this deal with China for the Americans. Except, oh yeah, uh, going to China looked great for Richard Nixon. The eight-day trip was custom-built for TV audiences, and Nixon's approval ratings, which had been sagging below 50%, shot back up past 60 and carried him to one of the biggest re-election wins in U.S. history. Between the excitement around China and racist dog whistling in the South, we will dive into that with a historian interview, I promise, Nixon cruised to a 47 million to 29 million vote win over Democrat George McGovern and a historic 520 to 17 win in the Electoral College, trailing only Reagan and FDR among modern presidents and margin of victory. This election was such a butt whooping, it probably wasn't even necessary when the plumbers that gang of washed-out CIA, FBI, and police officers loyal to Nixon broke into the Democratic National Headquarters at the Watergate Hotel on May 28, 1972 to try and find dirt on the Dems. You ready? It's Watergate time! Okay, so we talked earlier about how the plumbers were formed in response to the leak of the Pentagon Papers. Their first mission was to plug leaks, but their larger mission was to help Nixon win re-election by any means necessary. As we've seen, Nixon campaigns have never shied from dirty tricks. The anonymous phone call, Jerry Voorhees is a communist, click. But the plumbers took it to another level, and they did it with such incompetence. Have you ever heard the George Carlin joke? Think of how dumb the average person is and realize half the people are stupider than that. That joke explains how Watergate was possible. First off, the Watergate break-in you've heard of is actually the third attempted break-in of the Democrat National Committee headquarters at the Watergate Hotel in Washington, D.C. The first time the plumbers attempted it, they failed because the door was locked and they had the wrong locksmith. The second time they attempted it, they got in, planted the bugs, and got out, only to discover they had bugged the wrong rooms. So, on June 17th, 1972, they tried again. One of the plumbers placed tape over the latches of all the doors leading from the garage to the headquarters, so the automatic locks would not engage, only for a night patrolman to find the tape. But this security guy, he didn't call it in. He assumed the tape had been left by maintenance or something, so he just removed it and continued along his patrol. Until his circuit took him back around the same door a couple hours later and he saw someone, late at night, had retaped the door. That was suspicious. At this point, the guard started following the doors with tape on them. And that's when the plumber, who was keeping watch from a hotel across the street, should have seen the guard coming and called the operation off by radio, but the lookout was distracted because the 1958 film Attack of the Puppet People was on TV, and he was watching Attack of the Puppet People instead. And that's why five plumbers dressed in business suits with surgical gloves on their hands were caught red-handed, breaking into the DNC headquarters and arrested by the DCPD. When Nixon was told six days later what had happened, he was ticked. Not because they'd attempted it, but because they should have picked a better target. And this next part is very important. Nixon ordered the head of the CIA to kill the FBI investigation into Watergate by hinting that this had been some kind of CIA op. Spy stuff. Nothing political. Don't worry about it. That will come back later. The FBI let it go. The press did not. 
Two months after the break-in, the Washington Post reported a $25,000 check from the Committee to Re-Elect the President. <laughs> the acronym for that is CREEP, one of the worst acronyms I've ever heard. Well, CREEP, a check from them had been deposited in one of the burglars' checking accounts. So now we have direct lines from Nixon's re-election campaign to the break-in. And the reporting continued from there. The thing to understand about Watergate is that this was not just one event. The arrest of the burglars lit a fuse of investigations, first by the press, then by Congress, with a slow burn. It took more than two years for that break-in to lead to Richard Nixon's resignation. Because while the Washington Post was initially on it, most of the country did not care. Remember, Nixon won a historically lopsided re-election five months after the break-in. Watergate wasn't even a campaign issue. But it started to gain traction in January, when the trial of the five Watergate burglars began, and the judge was in no mood to let them off easy. After they all pled guilty, expecting slaps on the wrist, the judge shocked them by telling them they would receive maximum penalties unless they squealed on who had put them up to it. Just like that, keeping the plumber silent became a lot more expensive. Nixon okayed paying whatever it took to keep them quiet. He sold ambassadorships to raise the money. But one of the plumbers flipped a month later, telling the judge he had been pressured by the White House into not saying a thing. At this point, Nixon put a new point man in charge of cleaning up the whole Watergate mess. John Dean. Dean was a White House counsel to Nixon who saw Watergate as a cancer on the presidency. But at first, he helped Nixon cover it up. He'd been briefed on the plumber's activities practically from day one, and he now helped move around money, make promises of pardons, and destroy evidence to cover it up. But the press, the courts, and soon Congress were getting closer and closer to the truth. As winter turned to spring and summer, Nixon became convinced that Dean would have to take the fall for him, and Dean did not see it that way. Nixon fired Dean, and Dean flipped on him, singing like a canary, testifying that Nixon was deeply involved in Watergate. But it was still Dean's word against Nixon, and half the country didn't believe him. Until one day, when word came out that there were tapes. That's right, Nixon had recorded everything he had ever said in the Oval Office, including everything on Watergate. Why the heck did he do that? Well, uh, Nixon was not the first president to record his Oval Office conversations. Franklin Roosevelt had used a mic down to the basement where aides transcribed everything he said. Eisenhower used tape recorders. Kennedy installed a switch-operated system he used to record his thoughts after major meetings. Uh, this is where we got Kennedy's audio reflecting on the Zeme coup in the JFK episode. LBJ had likewise recorded himself. Even George Bush Sr. in more recent years kept an audio diary at night. They all had the same reasoning, the historical record. Nixon agreed. He initially dismantled the taping system and had his aides listen in and transcribe notes, but then he changed his mind and brought a taping system back for convenience. But unlike Nixon's predecessors, his was sound activated. It heard everything. And nobody but Nixon and the aide who installed it knew it was there. Nixon realized that much of what the system captured was damning, but he was confident presidential confidentiality would protect it from ever becoming public. The tapes were his! He was wrong. In June 1973, Nixon's team published a transcript of an Oval Office conversation to refute someone's testimony before Congress which got Congress thinking, hey, where did that transcript come from? That's when the existence of the tapes was revealed. Congress, the press, and a special investigator appointed to investigate Watergate asked for the tapes immediately. But before they could get them, another scandal broke, this time around the vice president. Nixon's vice, Spiro Agnew, had been taking bribes from Maryland businesses for years, including accepting at least one envelope stuffed with $10,000 in his office at the White House. Yikes! On October 10th, 
Agnew pled no contest to a federal indictment in a deal that would keep him out of prison if he resigned the vice presidency. And just like that, the vice presidency was open. And this sets up a crazy what if. After the vice president, the next person in line for the presidency is the Speaker of the House. And in 1974, the Speaker of the House was a Democrat. For Nixon to appoint a new VP, he would need the democratically controlled Congress to approve his nomination. If they refused and Nixon were impeached, the Democratic Speaker would become president. But the Democrats resisted that tempting what-if. Nixon nominated and Congress approved a likable Republican congressional leader named Gerald Ford for his VP. We will hear more about Ford soon enough. Back to the Watergate scandal. At the same time the old vice president was being removed from office, Nixon was losing his patience with a special investigator's pursuit of his Oval Office tapes. On October 20th, 1973, Nixon ordered his attorney general to fire the special investigator Archibald Cox. And the attorney general said, no. So Nixon fired him. Then Nixon summoned the number two man in the Justice Department and ordered him to fire Cox. And the number two man also said no. So Nixon fired him. And then Nixon summoned the number three man in the Justice Department and ordered him to fire Cox. And this time, the guy said yes. And side note, Ronald Reagan would later nominate this guy, the one who fired Cox, to the Supreme Court. This rapid fire succession of firings was called the Saturday Night Massacre. And if Nixon thought it would end things, he was way off. The nation freaked out and a new special investigator was appointed immediately. And this one also wanted the tapes. In April and May of 1974, two years after the break-in, the special investigator subpoenaed the tapes. Nixon refused to turn them over, and the investigator took his case to the Supreme Court. Congress opened an impeachment inquiry into Nixon over his refusal to hand over the tapes, and the Supreme Court unanimously ordered that Nixon hand the tapes over. When he did, the smoking gun was found. Remember at the very start of this Watergate story when Nixon ordered the CIA to block the FBI's investigation into Watergate? Roll tape! Days later, key Republican senators told Nixon the jig was up. The impeachment inquiry had passed the House and was en route to the Senate to begin a trial to remove Nixon from power. If Nixon didn't resign, the senators told him he would lose the trial. One way or another, he would be removed as president. On August 8, 1974, Nixon delivered a televised address. I shall resign the presidency effective at noon tomorrow. Vice President Ford will be sworn in as president at that hour in this office. In his final address to White House staff, Nixon said, Always remember, others may hate you, but those who hate you don't win unless you hate them. And then you destroy yourself. At noon the following day, Nixon smiled for the cameras one last time, boarded a helicopter, and departed. His presidency was over. So, how had America changed during the five years of the Nixon administration? Well, Roe v. Wade happened in 1973, declaring women had a constitutional right to privacy and abortions, a right that stood for 50 years until the court overturned it in 2022, but we'll get to that. On the inventions front, A small step for man, a giant leap for mankind. The United States won the space race by beating the Soviets to the moon in 1969. Also, computer games arrived. A pair of American engineers named Nolan Bushnell and Teb Dabney founded a company named Atari in 1972 and released their first hit, an arcade version of tennis called Pong. It was the world's first commercially successful video game. There would be more. The United States also obtained peace in Vietnam. Finally, the trick in the end was to give North Vietnam almost everything it was asking for. The terms were this. 
The United States would get its prisoners of war back if all American forces left South Vietnam and all North Vietnamese forces were allowed to stay in parts of South Vietnam they had occupied, which was quite a bit after a major summer offensive. South Vietnam's leader only accepted the deal because Nixon signed him a signed letter promising that if South Vietnam were ever attacked, the American military would return to protect it. We will learn the value of that letter when we get to Ford's presidency. There were four other major international events during Nixon's presidency. Remember how Pakistan helped Nixon back-channel to China so the whole Nixon goes to China thing could happen? Well, uh, Pakistan was kind of in the middle of a genocidal civil war at the time. And in exchange for Pakistan's help uh, opening China, the Nixon administration backed Pakistan in its war against what was then East Pakistan, but is today Bangladesh, which might tell you something about how the war ended. The people of East Pakistan, now Bangladesh, have nothing in common with the people of West Pakistan other than their Muslim religion. They were treated as second-class citizens, which may be why they wanted to form their own country, and why the West Pakistan military might have killed as many as 3 million Bangladeshi civilians in a brutal crackdown. It was a horrible conflict, and we backed the wrong side. Another cost of Nixon opening China. Then, in 1970, Black September. A civil war broke out in Jordan between Palestinian militants who wanted to overthrow the king because he wasn't fighting Israel enough, and the king. Palestinian units of the Syrian army even invaded at one point, and Jordan was only saved when Israeli tanks formed on the Syrian border, forcing Syria to back off. The Palestinian militants were evicted to Lebanon, and we will hear how that works out for Lebanon when we get to Reagan's episode. Two years later, 72, Palestinian terrorists attacked the Summer Olympic Games in Munich and first tortured, then murdered the entire Israeli Olympic team. One year after that, Israel was attacked again, this time by Egypt and Syria, which launched a surprise invasion on Yom Kippur, the holiest day of the Jewish calendar. Nixon had the United States provide emergency support to Israel, which fought off the invasion and won the war in less than a month, but an angry Arab world responded by declaring an oil embargo that tripled inflation, shocked the U.S. economy into its first recession since 1958, and led Congress to drop the national speed limit to 55 miles per hour. As for Nixon, well, he was still under criminal investigation for Watergate when he left office, but that was dismissed in a breath when Gerald Ford pardoned Nixon exactly one month after taking office. Accepting the pardon meant admitting guilt, but it was a heck of a lot better than going to jail. Several years later, Nixon, looking for cash, agreed to a sit-down interview with British journalist David Frost in exchange for $600,000. Nixon expected this to be a great opportunity to restore his reputation. Instead, he said this. Well, when the president does it, that means that it is not illegal. Nixon lived into the 1990s and thought all of the presidents who followed him were inferior. Carter was a hypocrite. Reagan and Ford were intellectual lightweights. Bush Sr. lacked strength. And the Clintons represented everything of the Vietnam-era youth he hated. Nixon's wife, Pat, died in 1993. And Nixon followed her less than a year later, dying on April 22, 1994, after suffering a stroke. He was 81 years old. So... What are three things to remember about Richard Nixon? There is a lot there, but I will suggest one, the Chenault Affair. This is the name we give to Nixon sabotaging the peace talks in Vietnam because it would help him win the presidency. Two, Nixon goes to China. This was a transformative moment for the United States, China, and the world. We would live in a radically different world today if Nixon hadn't opened China. Three, Watergate. Of course, Watergate. And what can we learn from Nixon? I'd suggest don't get lost in winning. Nixon was so obsessed with victory that there was no rule he wouldn't bend or break in pursuit of victory. And this was ultimately his downfall. Not only because it led to the crime that ended his presidency, Watergate, but also because everyone in Washington knew he didn't stand for anything except what helped him win. 
he was still that unlikable, awkward child who didn't know how to make connections. So when Watergate was set to go to trial in the Senate, nobody really felt like Nixon was their guy. He was out for himself. They knew it, and they abandoned him for it. Thank you for listening to today's episode of Abridged Presidential Histories. If you enjoyed it, please subscribe and leave a five-star review on your podcast listening platform of choice. If you'd like to support the show, you can look it up on Patreon or go directly to www.patreon.com slash abridgedpresidentialhistories. This helps me buy books and pay to host the show. The music in today's podcast is a public domain recording of the United States Army Old Guard Fife and Drum Corps. The primary biography for today's episode was Richard Nixon, The Life, by John Farrell. In our next episode, we will unpack Nixon's domestic achievements. What was the relationship between Nixon and Congress? Where do we see Nixon's agenda shine through? Where do we see Democrats flexing their muscle? And where do we see Nixon attempting to stand in the way? An interview with historian and Nixon expert Luke Nichter, next time on Abridged Presidential Histories. <laughs>